So Money episode 1065, Assembly member Rodnice Bishot. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Each time I entered the world of mathematics or the world of engineering or the world of the financial institutions, Wall Street, I was always questioned in terms of my ability. And I did always have to work 10 times as hard to get promoted, 10 times as hard just to just to get some type of recognition that, hey, you know what you're doing. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Happy Monday. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We have with us today, Assembly Member Rodnice Bishot. She is the first Haitian American woman elected in New York City. Today, she serves as the Assembly Member and State Committee Woman District Leader for New York State's 42nd Assembly District in Brooklyn, representing Flatbush, East Flatbush, Midwood, and Ditmas Park. Fun fact, Midwood was my very first assignment near neighborhood assignment in graduate school when I was studying to become a journalist. I decided Midwood would be a great hotbed for stories, a lot of diversity in Midwood. Now, Rodneys was born and raised in Brooklyn, and we discuss how at the age of 10, she had a devastating life experience, a car accident that unlocked a new life for her that ultimately led her to becoming a public servant. Rodneys is working very hard for her constituents. We discuss important bills that she's pushing for to provide economic relief to some of the city's most vulnerable, as well as her economic predictions for the Big Apple. Here's Rodneys Bishot. Rodneys Bishot, welcome to So Money. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. Hello, Fandoush. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Looking forward to it. And thank you so much for talking about leveling the economic playing field. Thank you. And, you know, I just finished a series called Black Wealth Matters, but didn't have the opportunity to speak to somebody who is entrenched in our legal system like you are, representing uh, (laughs) many, many constituents in Brooklyn. And and you may not know this, but I lived in Brooklyn for nine years. Brooklyn is very lucky to have you leading the way. And uh, I want to get to some of your economic initiatives because after all, in order to promote wealth and level the playing field for all people, we need certain laws to change. And uh, it's it's definitely a pivotal time in history for that. But first, you know, Rodney's your background, your background in business and engineering. Curious to know what was the inspiration for your pivot into politics? I understand that you uh, did work for a period of time with Barack Obama's team uh, when he he was in Illinois. So curious to learn more about Mm -hmm. what inspired you and what made you realize you wanted to become a public servant. I think this is like full circle. Literally, when I was young, I didn't want to have anything to do with politics. I wanted to be a dancer, a, a gymnast, an athlete. Unfortunately, at the age of 10 years old, I was struck by a speeding car at an intersection um, by my house, and I was permanently damaged. I was bedridden for about six months, then decided to say, hey, you know, I can't be an athlete. Let's go into math, engineering, things like that. Well, that skill set and my pursuit for engineering actually took me over to Illinois, which is where I 
bumped into this great man called Barack Obama, who was running for Senate in um, 2004. It was a great life-changing experience because this was my first exposure to working on the Democratic Party out in Illinois. More importantly, when I came back to work in Brooklyn, in New York, I noticed that the traffic light (laughs) that was not there was still not there. And I was like, wow, after 25 years, I almost died and still no one has called the Department of Transportation to put a traffic light here. And so I called on my elected officials. We made our voices heard. And eight months later, there was a traffic light. And, and mm-hmm. you know, at that point, I'm like, wow, it didn't take much to make a change. And that was yeah. really inspiring. Talk about full circle. Um, <laughs> and you are Haitian-American, first Haitian-American woman to be elected to state legislature from New York City. You're the new chair of Brooklyn's Democratic Party. We should mention your constituents overwhelmingly voted for you. What do you think the, it says about the current world that we live in that you were elected you know, in this climate? Well, first, I want to say that I do appreciate breaking down the barriers. Not only I was the first Haitian-American to serve as the uh, state assembly from New York City, but I was the first woman in Brooklyn and first black woman to serve as the county chair in New York City. I have to tell you, I have seen some progress because my transition and my nomination came from an Italian white man. And across the state of New York, it's been that particular demographic that has been really leading the Democratic Party. And and this Italian white man who nominated me felt that it was time for change. And so when we think about what Obama did and how he left the country and then we transitioned to this administration, I do feel that there's been a level of frustration because we felt that we're moving towards progressive change and then it reverted. So I think people probably haven't gotten used to change. And when I came on board, there was some speculations in terms of can this woman or can this black woman lead the largest Democratic Party in the nation. There was an article even about me saying that, wow, we looked at her record and she's an unusual prolific fundraiser, which again was a little bit insulting because I'm like, we are trying to change the narrative um, that there's equity across. And here we have you know, media writing about me saying that I'm an unusual Mm -hmm. prolific fundraiser as if women and Black women mm-hmm. cannot understand economic development, cannot bring wealth. I felt that I was being judged by my gender as a woman and by my race. And I asked the question, why is it unusual? Is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm a Black woman? When I came into the party, the party was in the red. In less than two, three months, I was able to raise over $300,000 and I'm hoping that people can change that perception of women, of black, of black women, of black people, because we have the opportunity where we can bridge the economic gap. Um, and here I am running the largest Democratic Party in the nation. One of my goals was to make sure there was an economic gap that needed to be bridged uh, within the party. And so I, I hope that as we're protesting, as we're fighting for change, 
the change that we hoped for when Obama, President Obama was in office, I hope it is in the hearts of the people here that they, they still can be changed and that we should not have these consistent perception of, of Black people in office mm-hmm. or Black people in leadership roles and women. I know that you're working hard to bridge that economic gap. We'll get into some of those important initiatives, but I, I'm still stuck on that. Uh, truth that you just shared, which is that as a woman, and especially as a woman of color, you have to work double, triple as diff- as hard to just prove basic things, that you are competent, that you can get the job done, and that, that showed up in your life as a politician. How else did it show up in your life growing up? Just as going back in time, perhaps, again, as someone who has her MBA, who went to engineering school, which again is male-dominated, what were there other points in your life where you felt you had to overproduce to just be accepted as an equal? And how did you overcome that? Or what is your advice for other Black women? So I have to say that it's been a recurring event throughout my whole career, whether it was in engineering or in classes with professors thinking that I'm going to be a failure and found out that I was the top of the class or in high school where I went to performing arts school and found out that I love math, but I hated doing my homework. Again, I was about to get a, a F in the class until they discovered that I had the top score in the math regions in trigonometry. It's been recurring. When growing up in a Haitian household where English was my second language because my parents spoke Haitian Creole, it was very difficult for me to integrate academically in the public school system. The accident that happened forced me to be bedridden with a homeschool instructor. Before the accident, I was below average. When I had that one-on-one, it brought me to average. When I returned to school, I skyrocketed and I ended up graduating in junior high school, third in my class, okay? That gave me the level of confidence to go on and to go to different areas, typically where you don't see women dominating those areas. And each time I entered the world of mathematics or the world of engineering or the world of the financial institutions, Wall Street, I was always questioned in terms of my ability. And I did always have to work 10 times as hard to get promoted, 10 times as hard just to just to get some type of recognition that, hey, you know what you're doing. And so I'm happy that, again, you have this Italian white male who saw my work for the last 10 years in the Democratic Party and said, you know what? You have all it takes. No one can do what you can do. I'm nominating you because mm-hmm. I know you're going to make it stronger. And it just takes time. I mean, I'm getting impatient. I don't know. I don't know how much <laughs> more time I can take. I want I want a level playing field. I want more equity in the hands of Black people and people of color and all the marginalized communities. And I know you're doing some important work uh, to that end to support Black wealth. Tell us about some of your initiatives. You have some economic bills. would love for you to just tell us what you have in the works. One of the things also, Farnoosh, you, you, you should understand is the face of Albany, the face of our state legislature has changed. We have a majority speaker by the name of Carl Hasey, who was the first African-American speaker to gain that leadership role. And, and also on the Senate side, we had the first woman and first Black to lead the Senate, the majority uh, leader, Andrew Stewart-Cousins. It took them to realize that a lot of the Black economics, um, Black issues, social issues, 
were very, very important. And legislation that we've been fighting for for many years were finally being recognized. The economics and the wealth gap was a big issue that typically people pay no attention to. In 2016, the median white family had more than 10 times the wealth of a median black family. And between 1992 and 2016, the gap increased by 54,000 on average. I was granted the honor to be appointed as the chair of the Minority Women Business Enterprise in 2015. And with that, I took it upon myself to fight on the way government procured, meaning did business with Black and women businesses across the state. And we found that for many years, for many years, although the overall tax paying dollars of the people here in the city of New York are majority minority and women, the majority of the contracts of $17 billion in New York City alone were going to white male businesses. Only less than 5% are going to Black, Latino, and women businesses. That's a problem. We have fought for a very long time on legislation that would break those barriers. And we've even had like Supreme Court rulings, Richmond versus Croson, where the majority of the people in Richmond were Black. And so the city decided to put a set aside, then was found unconstitutional because they had to prove that discrimination in economics continued to exist. So with these legislation that we produce, we wanted to make sure that we collected data, we had a disparity study so that we can put a number on what percentage of the dollars that are generated from the city and the state goes to Black businesses when it comes to vendors. Um, So we worked that really, really hard. Article 15A is the MWBE program, which is the Minority Women Business Program, which allows to have programs that would enable opportunities for minority and women to do businesses. That bill was extended for an extra five years, which was great. And I have to tell you, we had received lawsuits. That's the problem. We received lawsuits because they felt that it was reverse racism. We're fighting for- Reverse racism. Wow. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Reverse racism. Yes. That's a whole other show. That's a whole other show. Exactly. Exactly. But we we push for bills around that. We push for bills where uh, we wanted to make sure that there were discretionary funding up to Mm -hmm. 500,000 for businesses. We also push for workforce diversity. One Mm -hmm. of the things that we noticed that in the construction, and that's part of economics as well, in the construction world, they were not hiring enough Blacks, Latino, and women. And that in itself was creating an economic gap because many of those construction workers, after so many years of experience, they start their businesses. And that's how they start working with the city and the state. We did did a number of bills around that. Tell us about the bill regarding foreclosure. It's a Mm -hmm. huge problem right now, obviously, because uh, many people are out of work and our housing costs are typically our most expensive. Exactly. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we actually went to Albany to pass a number of mortgage forbearance, eviction moratorium-like 
type. Business. One of the bills that we passed was the mortgage forbearance, which would allow owners to forego paying their mortgage for another 180 days. And the reason why that was important, because a lot of the small homeowners weren't getting cash flow lost their jobs. In fact, many of them were hit the hardest in our community. Many of the Black homeowners were hit the hardest because of the socioeconomic divide in our healthcare system impacted these people's lives. We had a lot of people who were impacted and died, and it was hit the hardest here. So we wanted to make sure there was a program that would not you know, create a situation where the homeless shelter would increase. What I'm introducing now is We want to make sure that a lot of the small businesses who are, let's say, retail, front store, retail, uh, commercial businesses uh, would also have the opportunity to extend a forbearance period where they can get some type of relief and that the bank won't foreclose on them. You know, 50% of the people who are hired in our community are hired by small businesses, Black businesses, and so forth. And if the bank completely washed these small businesses out, then that would have a major negative impact in our community. Yeah, the trickle-down impact is really obvious. What do you think about relief directly for people who are renting. That's so much, that's such a bigger population in New York City, in particular within the uh, minority community. We we know that uh, ownership, home ownership is, there's a big gap there. Is there anything on the docket there? Is there any relief hopefully in, in that form coming their way? Yeah. So we're looking to, again, extend the eviction moratorium. We also pass a, a rent subsidies uh, depending on your area median income and depending on h- how much of your income was impacted through COVID-19. And if your living expenses has increased to, you know, from 30 percent to 50 percent or something like that. What we did, we passed a rent subsidies where the landlords would be getting subsidies to help the renters pay their full rent. We are looking to expand that, uh, you know, because this was, again, detrimental to all of us. But we also have been looking to expand the eviction moratorium, which would disallow any court, any landlord from evicting these renters. So we are we've been looking at that, uh, you know, in New York City, rent has been or affordable housing has been the number one issue. Please tell us about the racial profiling bills that you also are working on. As you know, with the police reform, we've been passing a racial profiling bill that would actually require police officers to collect data on all stop and frisk, which would allow us to evaluate how many instances these are happening and what kind of injunctive relief or damages can be provided for those who've been impacted. So that's the racial profiling, traditional profiling bill. We also decided to introduce a racial profiling bill when it comes to banks. During the COVID-19 pandemic, when the stimulus package came out, there was about $300 billion that went out to these businesses. The vast majority of the Black businesses did not get approved because the banks would not approve them. And so in the second round, Congress decided to feed $60 billion of those dollars into uh, what's called a CDFI, which is the Community Development Financial Institutions, which are institutions 
that typically don't discriminate against these businesses. When we decided to do this racial profiling and banking bill, this bill would uh, would mandate the reporting of racial profiling by New York regulated financial institution. It will provide a means for collecting data on racial profiling bias during financial transactions. And it's a measure, again, for injunctive relief, damages in cases where profiling occurs. It has happening for decades and it continue to be a hamper on the small businesses, the black businesses who are trying to thrive. What do you think is the bias? What is the assumption, financial risk? Is it what is, what is, what, yeah, what, what is I, the resistance? What is the resistance? I think the resistance is, I think they feel that the black community, the black businesses have a higher financial risk prejudging and that they probably are irresponsible. They're not going to pay their debt and so forth. But again, a lot of these came from the predatory lending practices, the redlining in our communities that have put a population and a generation of uh, Black businesses further back because of the way the credit rating uh, system would be biased towards a lot of the Black businesses, Black people in general. And also, these Black businesses not having access to resources and attorneys and funds to protect them and speak on their behalf. So it's a lot. And when a Black business who's doing very well, who has a record to show for themselves, the banks just don't want to help. They don't mm-hmm. want to help. It's almost like they're set up to fail. And then mm-hmm. when they need to help, this vicious cycle. You know, sticking with New York City, I now live in New Jersey, but my heart is still in New York. And I think about what is the future for New York City. So many people are talking about leaving. As you mentioned, small business owners have been devastated the most. Are you optimistic that New York is going to get its groove back uh, in the near term? What is New York going to look like, you know, 18 months from now? What will change? Forever. Well, you know, we have a lot of the small retail shops that are looking to move to a digital platform um, because that's how they had to operate in order to sustain themselves. I think the retail real estate market would obviously be impacted because people won't be able to afford to pay rent to do their businesses. So I think people are being a a lot more creative. People are still a little bit worried in terms of, um, you know, another wave coming back. Our school system don't know if they're going to resume a physical in class. So you have the model is changing in the way we operate. Everything is digital. Everything is online. So some things will be able to recover and some things will probably not. But we do feel that there's an opportunity to change the paradigm shift. Hopefully make the city more affordable. That would be nice. Yeah, that would be nice. I mean, we're hoping that rent doesn't go up mm-hmm. <laughs> next yeah. year. I don't, see how, I don't see how it could, honestly, with uh, mm-hmm. with the supply and demand. We're ping-ponging a little bit, but I'm having a really good time learning about uh, the way you think and the way you, the way you have connected the dots in your own life. And one of the questions that I like to ask guests, because this is a financial podcast, is <laughs> what is your greatest memory about money from childhood? I know that when you were 10, that near-death accident gave you so many life skills and so much of a, so much of an important perspective on life. But were you ever taught financial literacy growing up or was there a theme growing up around money 
that has continued to stay with you into your adulthood, something that your family would always say or, or you know, just learning f- through their modeling? <laughs> I, I can say a lot about this. Growing up in a Haitian household as a woman and in a single parent household, everything, everything came from mom. My mom would always say in Creole, c'est pour faire économie, c'est pour faire économie. And what she was saying is you need to understand how to save. My mother coming into this country, she didn't come into this country with my father saying, hey, come. He literally had moved there. He was a famous jazz musician. And my mother was an entrepreneur back in Haiti where she was selling like, you know, clothes. She saved up all her pennies. She moved to New York. She then worked in the textile industry. And every time she received a check, she had to give it to my dad until she started saving on her own. Eventually, when my father retired and went back to Haiti, my mother had to kind of raise four kids and, you know, pay the mortgage on her own as a housekeeper. She was a housekeeper at a hotel. And when I graduated and went back to Chicago, My mother was making half as much as me, but she was saving twice as much. And it was a lesson to me because my mother told me, how in the world you have a degree, I'm making less than you and I'm saving more than you and I have a house. That changed me. And I said, you know what, mom, you're right. And you've been telling this to us for a very long time. With that, I saved up a little bit of money and I purchased my first house at the age of 28. Just watching my mother being able to make ends meet as a single mom, as an immigrant woman, was extremely inspiring. That helped me to keep afloat when I was laid off from Wall Street and had to maintain my investments, just maintain myself with no medical coverage. And I don't know how many households has the opportunity to tell their children the meaning of saving, the meaning of being able to be financially responsible. Um, So for me, that's what it was all about, being financially responsible so that we can have options to build, build wealth for the next generation. And my mother has built wealth for each and every one of her kids. Nothing like the fear of God when it comes from your mother. Um, Yes. (laughs) I definitely experienced that. And I share in that experience a little bit because I have immigrant parents. And I always say, when people say like, you know, where do you get your grit from? And I say, well, I look at my parents and I think, first of all, they sacrificed just like your mom so much to come to the United States. I mean, yes, there was a a lot of promise in this, in this country, but it was just, you know, it's a scary thing to do to leave your country, to come here and, and start over. So I have no excuse. You know, I, I can't, I cannot succumb to weakness. I have to stay strong. I have to strategize and figure it out because they did. And I think they did it with a lot less than what I have now. So what's my excuse? I always say. (laughs) Exactly. There is a unique advantage to being a child of immigrants. Radis, it's been so wonderful to spend some time with you. And I know you're super busy. So I really appreciate you taking all this time to come on the show and talk about how you've built your career, your pivot into politics and all the important legislation you have in the works. And thank you so much. And we would love to catch up down the road. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. It was a pleasure being here on So Money. And I certainly look forward to working with you. And thank you for being a mouthpiece because again, leveling the economic playing field is very Mm -hmm. important to all of us. 
learn more about Rodney's Bichotte and her initiatives, check out somoneypodcast.com. We've got all the good links there, as well as the transcript and audio. And while you're there, click on Ask for News and leave me your questions for our Friday episodes. They are back and looking forward to tackling your money questions. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. I hope your day is so money. Money.